Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Broadband.Money. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our third episode of 2022. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors for Fiber for Breakfast, including our platinum sponsor, Broadband Money. Our gold sponsors, Joner Tools, Millennium, and MyBundle.TV and our silver sponsor, STL. You know, this has been a crazy week so far with a lot going on. Today at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Fiber Broadband Association will be holding a webinar. $43.5 billion passed for broadband infrastructure, now for your next steps. You know, it appears there's a lot of interest in this topic as we're close to hitting our limit to blowing up go-to webinars. So if you haven't registered, you better hurry up as this event will be closing out soon. Uh, during this webinar, you know, our policy experts are gonna break down the statute on what the key gotchas are and review the NTI process and timeline, and then outline the key steps that the state broadband offices uh, need to take and how Congress is gonna engage in some inside baseball on the whole politics of this exercise. You know, we're gonna leave plenty of time for Q&A, so please get your very difficult and challenging questions ready, as I love those. Um, also, you know, comments are going to be due February 4th for the NTI's request for comments on the broadband programs in the bipartisan infrastructure law. You know, we've been whittling away and we're definitely going to be submitting comments. I know, Ernesto, you'll probably be submitting a few comments yourself. Um, and then, we, you know, we have the final treasury rules for ARPA block grants, and so that's 350 billion in state grant program that takes effect April 1st. And in addition to that, you know, we have the, the Treasury has the $10 billion Corona Capital Projects grant. And so the states, you'll need to apply by September 2020, so September this year. And then last week, great news on Capitol Hill. Um, Alan Davidson's nomination to head NTIA was confirmed. So the leadership's all in place at NTIA as we all work towards this whole uh, broadband infrastructure and the bead notice of funding opportunity. So as you can see, there's a lot of focus in Washington on closing the digital equity divide, and we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make this a reality. That brings us to the topic of this morning's Five for Breakfast. What will it take to close the digital equity gap? You know, last week we met with the Fiber Broadband Association's Technology Committee Chair, John George, to discuss why fiber is the only future-ready broadband. You know, John consolidated a number of the Fiber Broadband Association studies and white papers that we did over the past year to net out why fiber is the only answer. I think everybody on this call can agree on that. Um, and this um, the session this morning is one of our favorite guests, Ernesto Falcon, the Le Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit organization that promotes 21st century fiber access for all Americans in its policy work. Today's topic is, what will it take to close the digital equity gap? 
During this, this session, we're gonna discuss how NTIA is tasked with not only funding broadband infrastructure, but long-term infrastructure solutions. Simultaneously, the uh, NTIA must define low-cost broadband service as part of its process, while the FCC must implement a new five-year, $30 a month subsidy program to help low-income Americans afford broadband access. Ernesto Falcon is the Senior Legislative Counsel at EFF with a primarily, primary focus on intellectual property, open internet issues, broadband access, and competition policy. He leads EFS research and advocacy to pro promote universal availability, affordability, and kind of competitive fiber broadband networks. So welcome, Ernesto. It's great to have you here. For audience, please type in your questions as you go for the Q&A at the end of Ernesto's presentation. With that, I'll pass it over to Ernesto. Hey, thank you, Gary, and thank you, everyone, uh, you know, for the invitation here. Um, I always forget this first slide's a transition slide. Go ahead and hit next slide a few times because it brings the rest of the pieces on the right. So this is just a quick uh, introduction to what is the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, Gary's done a, a good job of giving you the the background, and I think the the kind of the big pieces is we're we're a mix of of lawyers, engineers, and activists at a uh, public interest law firm, and we're primarily funded by membership uh, people. Uh, any you know, in any given time, between 30 to 40,000 people a year uh, give money to EFF to fight for these various goals and uh, objectives and policy. And so, you know, we come at uh, the broadband space uh, really from our history. Uh, a little over 30 years ago, we were founded on this idea that as technology advances, and if you think about 1990, this is a time really at the advent of the commercialization of the internet, uh, the early days. And our, our founders really saw a transformative change coming and what are going to be uh, done to protect our privacy, our, our freedom of speech, uh, the various rights that we are accustomed to in a pre-digital world, and how to make sure they uh, grow or, or at least stay even or grow and enhance with the advancement of technology. And so broadband for us is really about uh, ensuring everyone has uh, the ability to be a full-fledged citizen, you know, healthcare. Your, your political activity, uh, access to education, economic opportunity, all, all these things now are tied to your broadband access. And uh, we really settled on fiber because uh, fiber really is this future-proof medium. There is really any question on a technical side whether uh, you know what's going to keep up with scaling demand that is uh, with us every single year. People need more bandwidth per year, and, and it'll, there's no reason to assume it'll abate anytime soon. So um, you know, if you're not really on that kind of 21st century track of infrastructure, uh, slowly these services, these these things that you can participate in will become harder, uh, if not impossible, as the uh, applications and services advance. So that's really kind of the underpinning of what, of why we we dig into this. So uh, to talk about equity and, you know, how to bring, uh, you know, all, lift all boats and bring everyone together uh, and provide equal access to the future. Uh, I think it's first just worth going through the infrastructure package and what, what the provisions are. So go ahead, next slide, please. So, um, you know, what is in, in the infrastructure package? So, you know, the the, the broad strokes of what's in uh, the federal law, uh, you know, basically Congress set out to have uh, two, two major federal agencies, the uh, NTIA and the FCC, uh, to uh, really not just uh, you know, engage in a handful of subsidies or, or kind of the traditional way of how we've done it, but really engage in a, in a transformative um, effort. 
Uh, both of these agents have some pretty distinct responsibilities and I'll go into each of them uh, and kind of highlight the what would this mean particularly for affordability and low-income access and what what are the you know, pitfalls I worry about because of the number of, you know, the number of chefs in the kitchen. Uh, every state and territory have to work with the NTA to come up with their plan. And there's a lot of technical pieces to this to really uh, deliver uh, a long-term solution for, 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 for everyone. <clears throat> so I'll start with the NTIA. Um, the, uh, you know, their their main responsibility is going to be issuing the grants and structuring uh, both technical guidance uh, between the NTI and the states, as well as uh, providing guidance to the states developing their own plans. Uh, every state has to kind of come up with its own strategy with its federal resources to to you know achieve the goals of the statute, which is to get everyone connected. Um, but it's more than just get everyone connected, and I'll I'll go into that in the, in a minute. But um, there are a number of, uh, and I think one what's going to be really interesting in this is uh, st all the states have very different resources at their disposal, uh, different uh, you know state agencies as well as um, state broadband offices and and things that um, you know really I think affect their level of preparedness to um, receive a large tranche of money and then figure out what's the five, ten, fifteen, thirty year plan with those funds. Um, and I think it's true for state, there's, there's a number of states that probably are ill-prepared for that. And I think that that's where the NTIA's responsibilities to assist and provide technical guidance uh, to, to the, what are going to be the sub-granting entities, the states, uh, is key. And that's really a big part of this NTIA comment process that started now. They ask a, a lot of questions about how to basically provide the best information, the, the best um support uh, for, for states to do the most with, with the dollars. And EFF has a handful of uh, opinions on, on things that would be necessary really to, to promote uh, the fiber infrastructure to all people. And uh, you know, go ahead, next slide, please. You know, if we look at the statute, it'll be, um, I think it's pretty clear that fiber is really a, a key piece of the puzzle for what states are going to have to do. So this is just a, an overview of the <clears throat> the number of responsibilities and things that states actually can do with the funding. Um, again, there's going to be a lot of discrepancy amongst the states, and I'll go into California at the end of this because I think California, because of its own infrastructure fund, um, which is fairly robust, uh, is really kind of moving beyond just the unserved and what they can do, but really can start tackling the underserved. Uh, and so they have an awful lot of flexibility to figure out what, what they can do with the federal funding along with the state funding to uh, you know, achieve a lot of, of powerful metrics. And there's a lot of activity that's happening as, as a result of that. Um, the federal dollars uh, are going to really um, invite um, more ambitious thinking and more ambitious efforts uh, in ways that we will, we, it's, it's hard to appreciate now, but I think in five years when we look back at this, we're gonna see some pretty uh, amazing stuff when, when we get down to it. So here's where I think it's probably the most important part of the entire NTIA process, because, um, you know, as Gary mentioned, and I think that 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 afternoon uh, or yeah, the afternoon presentation mentioned, it's really important for particular people who really want states to get this right. There's an awful lot of politics are going to get involved in um, in the implementation of these programs. And, and then there's objective engineering realities about what the statute says and what can what can meet those metrics. So, you know, what, what is mandatory at a minimum, uh, you know, 100 down, 20 up in terms of what's being built, 
uh, but it's, you know, as, as the statute says, sufficiently low, low in latency uh, and allows a number of uses. And then what Congress emphasizes with its priority broadband projects, and this is really key, is easily scalable networks. Um, and as well as networks that can support kind of the, not just today's uh, advanced wireless services, but the future. And, and all, all advanced services, not just wireless services. So the, the key thing here, I think, is, um, and, and I'm, I'm, gonna I'm gonna add it to this, the, the low cost and the affordability piece of it, because they're all interrelated. Um, the key part here is Congress is clearly understanding that yes, build 100 down 20 up, uh, but that's the minimum, all right? That, what this infrastructure should do is meet that today and then be, be on its own, capable of reaching further and further and further, uh, meeting community needs and projected community needs. And, and our estimation at EFF um, is annual growth and, and usage of, of bandwidth, if you will. Um, you know, it grows about 21% uh, on average per year. Uh, that's a huge number. And that's just on the, the general sense. On the upload side, it is, is growing somewhere in the, if you, if you look at the averages in the pandemic, you know, it's well past 50% growth year to year right now. And I, and I think that makes a lot of sense with distributed work. Um, the reality is that, uh, you know, we're in the second year pandemic and, and work and life is changing as a result of that in structures. So um, there's little reason to think that Congress envisioned, specifically when it says easily scale speeds over time, that they want 100 down 20 up to be the, the maximum threshold or even anywhere close to what the maximum threshold of this infrastructure can do. And particularly the word easily, uh, you know, the NTA's responsibility is going to be to have to define that because, you know, as, as many people probably in the audience here know, technically every network can scale. Right, you can you could throw enough hardware at it, throw enough investment at it, throw enough money at it. If you have if you have infinite money, you can make anything scale. Launch triple the number of satellites, uh, build triple the number of uh, wireless towers. Right, there's any way to make those things scale, but easily scalable. Uh, I really think leans pretty heavily on fiber because, as we all know, you know the spectrum capacities is in that wire. Uh, we the uh, transmission medium. And the advancements in that will be premised on advancements in hardware. So there's no construction, there's no trenching, there's no um, really the expensive capital expenditures that increase the capacity of these networks uh, are non-existent. It's just, you know, you can just kind of uh, build your network and then uh, your standard hardware rotation you would always do when your computers get too old and you have to get a new set of computers. Um, that will just advance the network on its own. And that, that has a lot of implications. And, and this is where the equity piece really comes into play. That has an, a lot of implications on price uh, and cost. And if it has implications on, on cost, it has implications on what your cap capability of offering uh, affordable access that's, that, that meets needs as they grow. Um, I, I think really there's only one transmission medium that can plan on you know, delivering you know, in the case of Chattanooga, you know, free 100 symmetrical internet, uh, and then a handful of years from now, 250, and then a number of years from now, gigabit symmetrical, because people will need that. Uh, it's hard to imagine that now, but we've we've all lived the experience that we always need more uh, year to year. And so this is going to be a big challenge for the NTIA is um, establishing what is a low-cost broadband option uh with the recognition of the the real um speed chasm differences amongst the mediums 
And so, you know, there's an awful lot of emphasis in, in DC about quote unquote technology neutrality. And I'm not arguing say pick, pick a technology and therefore move forward. What I'm arguing is pick objectives that are going to meet people's needs 30 years from now. And, and just the, the truth of the matter is there's really only one medium that, that it can do that. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, that's just gravity, right? That's physics. Uh, one thing that I will add to is there's going to be need, a need to think about new models that are beyond just last mile um, subsidy grants uh, to build out the last mile. And the EFF, you know, we have a cost model study we did in October that, that really breaks down um, open access fiber, essentially uh, building the, the fiber infrastructure. The provider isn't a seller of broadband service. They're simply a, a, a wholesale provider of the access to the capacity. We think that's pretty integral to really stretch the dollars and really reach everyone with fiber uh, at some point in the future because um, there's so many different needs that are reliant on high capacity networks uh, that you, you, you can't, the, 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 the fact of the matter is you're going to have to have some, some means of providing infrastructure that meets all those needs simultaneously rather than one pr broadband provider uh, at any one time. And so our, our, own, um, our own cost model is a, just one of a graph from our, our study and that link at the bottom uh, gives you the link to our study. You know, we found that the, the wholesale networks can actually engage in, in further, further more uh, reach and meet, reach more people at, at a lower subsidy cost. Uh, and so because of that, and because of the fact that the federal dollars, while generous uh, at $45 billion, may not be enough on its own without some creative thinking and some new models introduced, um, you know, we think wholesale networks is a big part of, uh, not the entirety of the solution, but it's going to need to be a big part in order to stretch those dollars to, if we really are serious about fiber to all people. And so the FCC has its own responsibilities. Uh, you know, as, as, as was mentioned, they have um, a five-year program to implement with a $30 a month subsidy. That's an enormous amount of money, uh, to be frank, because many networks, particularly in, in, I would say, in the public sector, that can deliver access at an at-cost basis, I think that's going to enable uh, some amazing things if the government can bring all the various interests interest in the public service models together. So for, for example, um, I think the pandemic demonstrated school districts are really essential for providing access. Uh, I think a number of schools, uh, if given the finances between the infrastructure program, uh, as well as what states can do, as well as access to the subsidy program, can really start getting into this space of, you know, they already do free lunch. They already do a number of other uh, support structures for the community. And I think it is natural for them to be a big part of the equity and broadband solution for a number of reasons. One, um, you know, families are, are accustomed to trusting the school as a source of access to knowledge and, and community. Uh, they have a hard time trusting pre uh, the broadband carriers directly and, 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 you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so if you work through the school, a trusted entity, you know, whether it's the, the entity itself delivering access or a private company uh, working with the school district to provide access, you know, I think it's really kind of at the heart of many communities to deliver, um, you know, deliver the solutions. Uh, the other piece at the FCC, uh, and then we'll get to, to Q&A because I want to wrap up on the states here, um, is this digital discrimination rulemaking. Uh, I think the, as I mentioned before, Fiber has this unique principle that it's going to be able to scale speeds and, and keep prices pretty stable or fall, or fall. 
simply because it's relying on, on very cheap upgrades of, of hardware uh, advancements. That's going to have a real implication about like what's the minimum speeds they can offer at a really low price. And the digital discrimination rulemaking is going to be about equal access. So to, to put it real blunt and clear, um, there's a real difference if you're uh, community connected to fiber and if you're community connected to legacy, any sort of legacy infrastructure. So because, yes, you may be able to both deliver 100 down, 20 up, but only one of those are going to have a clear path to 250 symmetrical, 500 symmetrical, gigabit, 10 gigabit, 50 gigabit years from now. And so the inequities may not be obvious today, but with, with real scrutiny and, and an understanding about what the future holds, uh, and this isn't magic, right? This is this is the province of engineers. Uh, there is a real need to ensure that all people are, are accessing kind of the future-proof uh, 21st century access uh, across across all communities. And this is going to have a real impact on on the urban markets, not necessarily, I think, in the rural side, because the FCC uh, the rulemaking has to be contingent on like economic um, capacity, right? Whether it's viable economically to deliver the infrastructure. And I, and I emphasize that because, you know, Fiber Broadband Association has this great uh, cost model study that shows uh, economic feasibility. And the reason why I say a lot of these equality rulemaking, this equality rulemaking provision is going to have a big impact on cities is because cities are really that zero to, you know, zero to 70th percentile um, metric. And it's, and it's, you know, by, you know, this estimation, quite a number of households can be fibered up economically. Uh, next slide, please. And even by uh, if oh sorry I have a slide later I never I got my order wrong and I'll, I'll get to a point in particularly in one city in California because we're gonna I'm gonna pivot here and so the overlap with the federal program and what's going on here in California is California has an enormous uh, infrastructure program in place that's going to basically get everyone connected to fiber there's plenty of resources there to do it and there's actually entities now being built to do that uh, particularly on the rural side. So these are kind of like the four main uh, tenets of the California law. Um, and I think the, the biggest one is going to be the loan loss reserve fund, which is essentially like mortgages for fiber. I mean, it was uh, sought sought for and advocated for by the county governments on the, on the rural side of California um, who needed a long-term financing vehicle to help finance 30-year plans. And so they're um, beginning that process. And the federal funding really is going to uh, be something that kind of complements that quite well. So this is the rural county government's um, uh, authority. Uh, they've essentially created this joint uh, authority amongst uh, 30, I think, 32 county governments. And uh, their their plan is open access fiber at the heart of what they're doing. Uh, so, you know, going back to what I was explaining earlier, they kind of recognize this is how we connect all uses and connect all the needs uh, and, and provision something that uh, is long term. And, and they took a lot of their lessons from what happened, what's happening in Utah with Utopia. And, uh, and I think this will be actually quite successful given the demand and the, ne and the needs out there. And even the uh, big urban markets uh, like Los Angeles County is now actively contemplating how to fiber up the port, the around 50% of the community that doesn't have fiber. And um, you know, I'm particularly proud, of, this is a slide from a uh, 200 slide presentation that had happened at the county uh, supervisor meeting a, a couple months ago. Um, and I forgot to include the link to the, the things, so I'll, I'll circulate that later. But um, I'm particularly proud of this because this is actually the site EFF's uh, technical study explaining the kind of the capacity differences amongst all these different transmission mediums, particularly the future. You know, in our own cost model study I mentioned earlier, you know, that we, we did a cost model study of Los Angeles County specifically using California's 
state government's cost model information. And um, you know, we, it shows we, you can push fiber pretty much to everyone before you even need to engage in subsidies. That, that dotted line really is this moment when subsidies are necessary to help make the economics work. And, um, and so I think, again, if you go to the digital, digital discrimination rulemaking, the need for equal access to all people, the, the activity that's happening now to deliver that to all people, um, some pretty exciting stuff are, are in the works, even for not just in the rural side, but even for our, our global cities. And, you know, and the, just to wrap up, there are other programs that are also going to, I think, have a pretty big impact on the, on the issue of equity. Uh, I invite everyone to look at the digital inclusion, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, who are really kind of the, a lead entity, uh, a convener of many of the different states and many of the different nonprofits that work in this space. But um, they're, they're having a, a, an op, a historic moment as well in this, in that they will be able to build um, support capacity on the ground to help all the different communities uh, really deliver access. And with that, I'm happy to go to Q&A. All right, Ernesto, um, ton of questions. Um, the one that disappeared on me, Jennifer, was um, there was someone from Alaska that was um, had a native-owned business and trying to get fiber to their community. Do we, there is a um, NACO conference in May that's a National Association of, of Counties, and we're going to do a fiber workshop, a quick fiber workshop, so that'll be in mid-May, so I'll look up your information and send you details on that, but I think that would be good for you to attend in Alaska. Um, so lots of questions. So first of all, um, can you talk about latency? Does latency appear in any of this? So yes, uh, and I think this is gonna be one of those things where, um, so the FCC already studies latency amongst the various different types of, of means of transmitting bandwidth, if you will, uh, broadband. And um, the NTIA is going to have to really start uh, establishing of guidance of what, like, what's an acceptable latency, as well as, um, you know, I think explain uses uh, or, or impacts on different services and applications. So, you know, the statute does contemplate latency as a as a provision of what um, of what needs to be uh, addressed in the projects. And um, you know, I think here's where it gets real tricky is um, these states may not be equipped to scrutinize uh, applications that come in that say we can deliver the following things. Um, and, and I think it's really essential for the NTA and the technical teams at the FCC and the NTA to, to help the states vet um, because a lot of people are going to make assertions about what they can deliver, but latency is something you can predict, uh, I think, fairly effectively with, with the right amount of, of technical uh, scrutiny. Yeah, and that, the same thing came in on um, quality of service. What um, the other thing that came in is um, let me see here. Um, so it was a comment, I guess, more about this highlighting you know in your list of your applications. So it says you need to support uh, Internet of Things speeds if you want to have 2025 manufacturing. So I think certainly we need to put that on our list. Um, some comments about how do we get Congress to do gigabit symmetric versus uh, 100 by 20. I know, as you said, that 100 by 20 were billed to. Um, yeah, so let me let me talk to that a bit because I think it's really important to understand um, Congress and the thinking of Congress here. Uh, and in you know Gary and I and, and many others were involved in a lot of these discussions. I think the decision to settle on a minimum speed of 100 down 20 up uh, really was you know a product of not uh, or you know a product of choosing like what's what's good enough right now based on what what today's usage is right. And at the same time. Um, 
everyone understands that you know it's funny because we're saying 100 down 20 up at a time where we're saying 25 and 3 25 down and 3 is sufficient for being served so there's already a clear recognition that that the numbers will always increase and and therefore that's why these priority broadband provisions were put in place um congress does not want states to build something that only can deliver 100 down 20 up and then that's the end of the debate um because they know what's that that's going to mean and, and senators and, and members of the house have all lived that experience of <clears throat> having communities that are connected to some sort of internet access but then the future marches forward and their their connectivity is essentially obsolete so obsolescence is something they understood maybe not to as a fine degree as i would have hoped um but that's why they tasked the nta to create this program i think it's really in, in, incumbent upon the nta to set and make clear predictions about what usage is going uh, in terms of growth and in terms of needs. Because if I'm told as a state, build 100 down 20 up as the minimum today, but here's what you should expect five years from now. It's going to be you know 300 and 100, and then probably 10 to 15 years from now, it's going to be beyond a gigabit symmetrical. If I'm under, if I'm explained that uh, when I make my plan, I'm going to really think hard about what we're putting money out, and it's going to be. I think the the pieces fall in pretty clearly where fiber is a central component to um, to meeting those future demands. Great. Um, so there's a comment, you know, highlighting that you know we're going to have enough engineers and construction teams to meet the need, and obviously workforce is top of mind for Fiber Broadband Association and many others. Um, this, but the last question, since we're out of time, is: um, Is there any new legislation to address state-level prohibitions against municipal broadband? There's always, uh, you know, bills that are are introduced. Uh, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo really is the lead on the House side. Um, this is an active debate in in the larger infrastructure package, and and I will say there's just a, div a lot of division of opinion. Uh, you weren't going to get the 60 votes, I think, in the Senate with with addressing that issue, unfortunately. Um, but I do think the states themselves will start unwinding these laws more more aggressively when presented with the realities that uh, there's only so much money that can go around, and you're going to have to engage in public infrastructure and some sort of at-cost delivery in order to, if you're really trying to be serious about getting to all people, it can't just be the pri a handful of private entities alone to make this work. You know, the other thing that we've noticed is uh, a lot of incumbent carriers um, have really changed their tune and are being very proactive in seeking public-private partnerships, working with um, municipalities, communities. So um, it's really a different world than it had been a few years ago. So it's very exciting. So well, man, Ernesto, sorry we're out of time. I always love um, listening to you. You always have great information. Uh, so thanks for sharing your insights and experience with our audience. Um, and thank you everybody for joining us today. And I look forward to getting back next Wednesday. We're gonna do a fireside chat with the Honorable Chris McLean, the acting RUS administrator and industry icon. Um, I had a great talk with uh, Chris the other day and um, just a wealth of knowledge. I think you'll enjoy that. And then also, you know, tune in this afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern uh, for our webinar on the $42.5 billion passed for broadband infrastructure. Now for your next steps. So thanks everyone and have a great rest of your week.